Hello and welcome to the Dismantle Racism Show. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. Our goal at the show is to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. There has been a lot happening in the world since I last was here. There's so many things for which we need to focus our attention on. Things that are related to just racial equity, but equity overall. And so I invite you to participate today in the show with thinking about those things that you really want to do to make a difference in the world, because it takes all of us to participate in changing the world. I know that dismantling racism can seem like a hard task, and indeed it is, but if each of us stands up for what we believe in and take a stand against racism, we can really dismantle racism. I had the opportunity during our absence, I was out in the Portland and the Ashland area uh, promoting my book on dismantling racism, and one of the things that occurred while I was there was a vigil was held for Aidan Ellison, who was killed by a white man for playing his music too loud. And I was just invited the night before this vigil to speak. And the thing that's really important for each of us is to remember when we are called upon, we have to answer the call. And so while I didn't go to Ashland prepared to do that, when called upon, I knew how important it was to be able to speak out. We have to do more than say we are against racism or that we want to promote racial equity. We have to actually speak out, even if it is unexpected. So I want to invite you, as you listen to each and every show, to think about the ways in which you want to show up in the world. Learn from our guests, even some things that you can do that perhaps you've never thought about to dismantle racism. It's one step at a time, engaging in the process with people who perhaps think differently, who look differently than you. There's something that you can do. Does not take you marching in the streets or having to tear down a complete system of racism to to dismantle it. So just wanna invite you to start where you are and use what you have and do what you can, as Arthur Ashe says. But we wanna begin our show today as always by inviting you into a process where you can connect with your divine wisdom and your sacred source. So if you would, I invite you, if you're able to, to close your eyes and just connect with your breath and begin to take some deep breaths in and out, connecting with sacred intelligence, which is that divine part of you that helps you to manifest your greatness while helping others to do the same. So just breathe in and out, centering yourself preparing you for the conversation ahead, connecting with who you are. Breathe in and out, knowing that you are loved and you are love itself. Breathe in and out, recognizing your connection with each and every person on this planet. We're all connected and what you do matters. Breathe in and out, connecting with your power source, knowing that you are powerful, knowing that you can change the status quo. Breathe in and out, knowing that the power of one contributes to the power of community. And together, we can dismantle racism. Now take a deep breath in, release it, and let's begin. 
Beloved, before I bring our guest on, I also uh, want to just share with you, I've actually been really busy because I recorded some meditations that will be out very shortly. They should actually be out within the next few days. So please make sure that you visit my website, sacredintelligence.com, where you'll learn a little bit more about that. Because I think it's important if we are going to do this work, we have to prepare ourselves. We have to arm ourselves. You cannot have a conversation with people if you're going to be ranting and raving and you're all torn up in the inside. And so the meditations really come from the meditations that are in my book, but I provided some breathing exercises with them as well, because we want to be as centered as we possibly can when we engage in the work of racial equity. On our show today, we're really going to dig into what happens when descendants of enslaved people come together with descendants of enslavers. We know that it is very, very painful for people to even talk about race. And we know that it is painful when people are experiencing race. And there's a lot of hostilities when we come together to talk, particularly cross-racially. But healing is absolutely possible if we know how to engage in the conversation and if we do our own internal work. So I want to talk to you today about coming to the table. Coming to the Table was founded in 2006 when two dozen descendants of enslaved people and enslavers gathered together to confront their family connections to the legacies and aftermath of slavery and our nation's history of racial oppression and inequity that still continues today. We often hear people say that that was in the past, but we know that racism is alive and well. And so coming to the table approaches racial justice and healing, and it focuses on truth-telling, liberation, and transformation. The integrated theories and practices of this approach are grounded in trauma awareness and resilience, conflict, transformation, human security, spirituality, and restorative justice. That's a lot. But little by little by little, we can tackle all of those things. So I'm really delighted today to have as my guest, Tom DeWolf, who serves as co-manager for Coming to the Table. I think I accidentally said uh, founder in our promotional materials, but he is co-manager for Coming to the Table, which again is a national nonprofit with 6,000 members and 50 plus local affiliate groups. And I really want to hear more about that, working together to create a just and truthful society. So I want to welcome him here because he is the author of Inheriting the Table. He's the co-author with Sharon Leslie Morgan of Gather at the Table, which won the Phyllis Wheatley Book Award for Nonfiction, Biography, and Memoir, and co-author with Jody. Gettys, I believe I'm saying that correctly, of the Little Book of Racial Healing. He is featured in the Emmy-nominated PBS documentary, Traces of the Trade. Tom is a public speaker and trainer at universities, corporations, and conferences. And I am just delighted to have you with us today, Tom. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate you inviting me on. Well, I am very grateful to our mutual friend, uh, Stephen Junkite, who actually told me about you coming to O-Line to really speak there. And, um, and Steve has also been on the show. So it was really fascinating to me when he told me that he knew you and we talked about the work that you're doing. Um, I, I want to hear about coming to the table, but tell me a little bit about your visit to O-Line, because part of the reason why you were there was to talk about your ancestor, Edward DeWolf, who uh, lived and was buried there, I believe. So tell me a little bit about the project there that you did with Steve. Well, I went to high school with Steve's uncle, 
and his mother was our math teacher. Mm. And so, you know, Phil and I have known each other for more than 50 years. And he introduced me to Steve because of the work that he and his congregation are doing in Old Lyme, mm -hmm. um, you know, to provide um, comfort and, and space for uh, people who, and specifically like immigrants coming here who would be persecuted in this country, and he would provide uh, safe haven. They would provide safe haven in their in their church for these folks. And so Phil and I connected us because our, our work was similar, trying to not just teach about equity and, equity and justice and, and truth-telling, um, but to live it. Yes. And, and so then Steve invited me to come out and um, lead a workshop uh, for his congregation and the community, and then to also... Um, I went to college to become a minister mm -hmm. and I, I'll just be really honest. I ended up leaving the church after witnessing so much hypocrisy and abuse. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't what Jesus taught a lot of what I was seeing and it's not all of it, but it mm -hmm. was enough for me, um, to walk away. So when he invited me to preach, here I was 40 some years after graduating from college, standing in a pulpit for the first time mm. to the sermon at, at that got you anyway, huh? Got me anyway. <laughs> well, well, you know, when I returned from gosh, so much to cover. I'm descended from the largest slave trading dynasty in US history. Mm -hmm. And I found this out. Um I sort of found this out back in the mid 80s. I was told that I was related to rum runners, slave traders and privateers. Mm -hmm. But it sounded more like Pirates of the Caribbean mm -hmm. um, at Disneyland than it sounded like a real thing. And um, it was years later that I got invited to participate in this journey that became uh, Traces of the Trade, a story from the deep north. Mm -hmm. And I wrote my first book, Inheriting the Trade, mm -hmm. uh, about this northern family confronting its legacy of connection to enslaving. Mm -hmm. And this was the largest slave trading dynasty in U.S. history, responsible for bringing more than 10,000 people, kidnapping, purchasing, bringing them to North and South America, 40 different ports, um, half a million of their descendants are likely alive today. So we retrace the triangle slave trade route of our ancestors from Rhode Island, the largest slave trading state in this country, to Ghana in West Africa, visiting the slave forts, the dungeons where people were held in such inhumane um, conditions, and then to Cuba where the family owned five sugar and coffee plantations um, and they would take the sugar back to Rhode Island, turn it into rum, trade rum for African people, and there's mm. your triangle trade. So, so Tom, I have so many questions to ask as a result of that, but we have to take a break. And I also just want to acknowledge, because I think that this is important, we're, we're having this coming to the table moment right now. And I want to just acknowledge what's even happening in my body as we're having this this conversation because I think people think, yeah, it's easy sometimes to engage in these conversations. And it is not. I talk about race all the time. But just even your description of um this family connection with enslavers inside my body, there's there's just things happening inside yeah. right now, right? And and even to the to the vocal cords, because it's all, I mean, a lot of trauma is psychosomatic, right? right? Not about experiencing it directly, but even thinking about what happened to my people. We're traded for rum, you know, and those sorts of things. But I do want to talk about when we come back from the break, I want to talk about what it felt like for you when you learned this, because you obviously did something with it. You know, yeah. and it might have taken you a while. So I want to hear a little bit of your story about how you discovered it, 
you know, how long it took you before you said, listen, I, I, I want to do something to really be about the healing and what the feelings were. So that's a lot for you to process yeah. during the break. We're going to sure. take a really quick break and be right back with the Dismantle Racism Show, where my guest today is Tom DeWolf, who is talking about being the descendant of one of the largest slave trades. We'll be right back. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. on edge? Hey, we live in challenging, edgy times, so let's lean in. I'm Sandra Bargeman, the host of The Edge of Every Day, which airs each Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges. That's The Edge of Every Day on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. We're back with the Dismantle Racism Show. Before the break, I was talking with my guest, Tom DeWolf, who is a descendant of one of the largest um, slave trades in the U.S. And before the break, Tom, I was acknowledging to you what it felt like in my body to have this conversation with you. Um, and, And what's so interesting is, is because I meet people all the time, obviously, who were descendants of, um, enslaved people but to directly talk with somebody who's acknowledging that and acknowledging that it was one of the largest and to hear the deed some of the details anyway um just acknowledging the impact of that on on my body so talk to me a little bit about your discovery what that was like for you and perhaps maybe what some of the feelings were that um really moved you to say i want to go down this rabbit hole a little bit farther. I I found out this connection pretty late in life. I didn't know any of this information as growing up. I grew up in Southern California. Um, pretty troubled times um, in terms of race relations in Southern California. I was in junior high school during the Watts riots. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, you could watch it on TV or you could walk out the front door and see the smoke rising above LA from where I lived. My junior high school campus, there were police in full riot gear on campus every day. Um, you know, so after I finished junior high school, my parents put my sister and me into a private Christian school to get away from all the the fights and the the police and the fear. And and so I mean I I grew up with an, an awareness of racism, um, but mostly it was being a fear, a, a fearful little white boy is mm-hmm. is what it felt like. And I mean, I was reading Eldridge Cleaver and Dick Gregory. I mean, this was, you know, we're in Southern California. So it wasn't that I was unaware. 
but then I was moved into a completely different world. And then I moved to Oregon to go to college, which is a very, very white state. Mm. Um, we had laws on the books in Oregon, in our constitution, not allowing black people to live in this state. Mm. And, it, uh, you know, it was that way until the the second world war. So it's, it wasn't until, you know, like the mid eighties when I first heard about this, but it was in, in the year 2000 that uh, a friend of mine here locally came up to me and said, I think we might be related. My dad's middle name is DeWolf mm -hmm. and he's a genealogist. And um, I actually went and visited his father. My wife and I went there on, on our honeymoon and he and his wife invited us to stay with them. He was a retired Episcopal priest at the time. And he started telling me all these stories about our family history being related to the author of Moby Dick, being related to Ethel Barrymore, the actress, um, the guy who played Paul Drake on um, Perry Mason, his middle name's DeWolf, the mm. man who made Casey at the Bat, that, that famous poem that made it so famous, was a DeWolf. Um, Hedda Hopper, the famous gossip columnist, married to a DeWolf. So it's like, wow. And then he mentioned the slave traders, rum runners, and privateers. But that it wasn't until 2000 when Dave, my friend, got invited to participate in this journey. And he handed it to me. And um, he said, you know, you like movies. They're making a movie about our family. You should check into this. Mm. And I contacted the woman, Katrina Brown, who was going to make the film. And ended up being invited, one of 10 white descendants of the enslavers who retraced the triangle trade. Mm. And the seminal moment for me, the most powerful moment still to this day was being in the dungeon at Cape Coast Castle where African men, I was in a men's dungeon, would be held for up to six weeks, um, small space, like 15 feet by 30 feet that would hold as many as 150 men and horrible, horrible conditions. And the battery for the light for a camera went out and there's no electricity in this space. So we're plunged into pitch black darkness. It's nighttime. And he said, it's going to take 10 or 15 minutes to replace the battery. And somebody said, let's turn on the flashlights. And somebody else said, why don't we not? Why don't we sit here in the dark? I sat there imagining what it would be like to be an African man torn away from my family 200 years ago, not knowing if they're dead or alive, them not knowing if I'm dead or alive. Mm. And it was the most horrific feeling I've ever experienced. Yeah. 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 And even just you describing it and, and you're not the first person I've heard to describe it. I've actually heard uh, African descendants describe what it's like to go back to that point of no return. Um, and I know that it's a horrific feeling. Um, and so from that point, when you went there and you had this experience as a part of the movie, is that what I'm understanding? It they was, yeah. Know what it was like. I mean, if people watch the movie, they'll see me with a notebook several times. I, I knew I was going to write a book. Mm -hmm. I've wanted to be a writer since I was a teenager. And this was finally the project that that felt certain that it was important to tell this tale in book form. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a 90 minute movie and then there's a book and mm -hmm. we didn't collaborate at all. I didn't see the movie and Katrina didn't read the manuscript. These were our separate journeys. Mm -hmm. And so writing about this, it was like, what do you do with this as a white person? What do you do with this information? And it was, you know, the movie didn't come out until 2008. And my, the book and the film both came out in January of 2008, mm -hmm. which was the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade in this country. Mm -hmm. um, even though it continued to be practiced until 1820 when it was made a hanging crime. Mm -hmm. And um, so having a couple of years before that, we did a screening of the film 
at the the National Episcopal Convention, where you know ten thousand Episcopal priests and Episcopalian leaders and 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 supporters were at this conference and and doing this screening. And a couple of weeks later, were invited to this weekend called Coming to the Table. They had heard about this and invited us um, to participate. So for me, it's like, what do you do with all of this? That weekend at Eastern Mennonite University with coming to the table, it's like, this is what's next. This is the next step. Tell me about that. Tell me, tell me what that was like for you, particularly since you had just gone through this journey to sit down and have your first conversation with a descendant of an enslaved person. What what was going through your mind? What was your body feeling? How well, did you make yourself do this? Yeah, it wasn't the first conversation. We were, uh, the family members were all white descendants of enslavers. Um, one of the producers who went with us on the entire journey is an African-American woman named Juanita Brown. And, um, you know, we spoke with her. We had an African crew in Ghana, a Ghanaian crew, um, who we're still in touch with, still still connected with. In Cuba, we had a Cuban crew. So we were getting perspectives from, um, and, and deep conversations from varieties of folks. And just a few days after we concluded our work, September 11th happened. Uh-huh. And... So it was like trauma upon trauma and editing was supposed to begin on the film on September 11th in 2001. So everything was thrown into disarray, which pushed back when this all happened. So getting invited to this coming to the table, it turns out that there's a a man named Will Harriston who's descended from the largest enslaving plantation owning family in this country, the Harristons, written about in the book. Um, the Harristons, an American family in black and white by Henry Winsack. He introduced Will to a woman named Susan Hutchison, who's the six-time great-granddaughter of Thomas Jefferson. She's a white woman. She was participating at Monticello with the Monticello community, bringing together the black and white descendants of Thomas Jefferson. So the descendants of Sally Hemings, as well as the descendants of his yes. wife, Martha, who were half-sisters. They shared uh-huh. the same father. Uh-huh. And so these two blended families, the black and white Harristons and black and white Jeffersons, came up with this whole new idea of what family reunion could look like. Yes. And that's uh-huh. what coming to the table was, uh-huh. is a way f- to work together, to hear each other's stories, to enter into authentic and accountable relationships with each other in order to work towards truth, justice, healing, um, equity, empowerment um, in our world. So Tom, talk a little bit about how coming to the table is structured, because, you know, it's one thing to come and to have the conversations. What happens though, because, and we're going to have to take a break in just, just a minute, but like, I know that often what can happen in trainings is that, uh, that people can hear stories of the uh, descendants of enslaved people, and often white people will want to learn from those. And sometimes we're re-traumatized in the right. telling. Um, but there's something different happening at coming to the table because both people are coming together to talk. So what I want to do is, um, because I know we're going to have to take a break, I want you to to we, I want to pause for the break. But when we okay. come back, to have you to just describe a little bit for our audience, what what actually is happening? You bet. You get to that place of transformation because you use the word truth-telling. And yes, it's important for us to come and hear our stories, but then what happens after that? So when we come right back, I'd like you to just jump in right there, if you would. Uh, This is the Dismantle Racism Show. Uh, My guest today is Tom DeWolf, and we're talking about what happens when you bring together descendants of enslavers and descendants of enslaved people. How do we get to the place of healing? So we will be right back with the Dismantle Racism Show. 
Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy and Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We're back with my guest today, Tom DeWolf. Tom, talk to me a little bit about what happens with coming to the table, the process. I know that is different now. It's evolved over time. But can you share with our audience today, what's the process like? Sure. I mean, it's it's an approach was developed. We call it the coming to the table approach to racial healing, racial justice, racial equity. And it's it's grounded in principles that were developed at the Center for Justice and Peace Building at Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. It's not a Mennonite organization. Um, you know, we have members who are Christian and non-Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, agnostic. Um, it's but here's another connection to September 11th is out of that, the Center for Justice and Peace Building worked to develop an understanding of trauma and how to be resilient in the face of trauma and created the STAR program, Strategies for Trauma Awareness and Resilience. And it was designed to help people who either are uh, victims of trauma or they're impacted by trauma because they're they witnessed it or they're a family member or a friend or what have you and that it, it ripples out trauma doesn't just happen to one person if my car gets broken into everybody in my neighborhood is impacted in, you know to some degree so understanding what trauma is and what it does to our bodies to our spirits was critical another aspect is restorative justice principles Criminal justice says something bad happened, who did it, and what do they deserve? Restorative justice recognizes how widespread the impact is of woundedness, of oppression, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that who all is involved, who all is impacted, who all has an obligation to help heal the wound to the degree possible. And then we utilize an ancient indigenous um, practice of circle process, Um, to equalize the room. Um, Whoever has the talking piece as we're in communication um, is the person with the floor, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, So using those tools, we come up with a set of agreements or touchstones, we call them, on how we're going to be together in conversation, in communication. And so it's things like being fully present, not fixing each other, recognizing we're not to get to the end of the road today. Mm -hmm. And so those as a foundation, the coming to the table, there's four pillars or four legs to this table. One is acknowledging, understanding, 
recognizing, talking about all of our history with openness, um, without fear, recognizing that horrible things have happened and continue to happen. Let's be honest about it and what we can do about it. If we hide it, there's nothing we can do. That's right. And it's building relationships within and across um, racial lines, mm-hmm. authentic and accountable relationships for the purpose of doing this work. Then working towards healing is the third pillar, which is by any means necessary. If it's in your faith community or your yoga practice, meditation, a mindfulness practice, music, art, um, writing, reading, um, whatever healing practices you use um, to work on this. And then taking action is the fourth pillar to undo the systems and structures of oppression that benefit people who look like me and disadvantage people who look like you. Mm-hmm. And, and so with all of this as a backdrop, people are coming very purposeful mm-hmm. and, and recognizing um that we're coming from very different places. What happens inside your body is very different from what happens in inside my body. And yet there's similarities because of the way that trauma acts on our bodies. And we have different experiences of this. For me, uh, as a white man, um, it's going to be more around guilt and shame rather than the oppression that was experienced. My ancestors didn't experience that kind of oppression that your ancestors experienced. Mm-hmm. I don't experience today what you experience. So it's a different a different woundedness, but it's woundedness nonetheless. Right. And we have to teach each other as we work through this process. Right. And here's what's important is is when we're wounded, right? Wounded people wound other people, right? Right. Um, Tom, I'm in terms of the process though, because I love those four pillars. Yeah. And healing takes time. Yes. How long is this program of coming to the table? All of this doesn't happen in one session, does it? You know, absolutely not. I mean, racism and racial oppression and injustice have been around for centuries. We're not going to solve it in a weekend long anti-racism workshop. Mm -hmm. And so that the final touchstone is always we're not going to get the end of the road today. Mm-hmm. And this is an ongoing process as life is an ongoing process. But it's a commitment to the work of undoing racism that's key. Coming to the table is easy. Staying at the table is key. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and that's one of the things I talk about in my book, too, because a lot of people, when George Floyd was murdered, they were just like, rah, 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 rah. And we've seen it did yeah in terms of the people who are who stayed invested in this but Tom uh my listener one of my listeners actually has a question and I'd love for you to to answer this particularly since I just came from Oregon and you just mentioned that it's a predominantly white state yeah what can you share about your choice to live in Oregon with this depths of racism and white supremacy which we heard a lot about when I was in in Oregon. So tell us about your choice to stay there. This is the, this is the, it's an interesting thing. I don't care where you live. It's, this is the reality. This is, this is the plumbing beneath our home, our societal home. It's the distribution of, of wealth and education and access and healthcare, criminal justice. So whether you're in Oregon or Georgia or Maryland or California, there's racism at its core. And I moved to Oregon to go to college, got married, had kids here, you build a home. All of that happened long before I knew this. And even if it didn't happen, you know, if I if I already knew this, we choose where we live based on our families or our, our work choices, whatever that may be. So I'm an Oregonian and I, I love living in Oregon. And Oregon has a lot of work to do and is also, there are many groups, many individuals um, that are doing the work. We have local affiliate groups um, here where I live in Central Oregon, as well as in Portland. Um, But this is, 
this is the water that we drink, sadly. It's the food that nourishes us and also causes the disease, the dis-ease in our right. bodies. That's so right. I have people who will tell me, I'm sure glad I'm not you. I'm glad I'm not related to those people. And my first response is, are you sure? When you mm -hmm. do your genealogical study, if you've been in this country, uh, your family has been in the United States for you know 200 years, you're most likely related to slave traders or slave owners. However, even if you weren't, did your ancestors wear cotton? Did they drink coffee or tea? Did they eat rice? Um, you know, slavery was the oil that drove the economic engine of this nation for a really long time. And it happened all over the world. It happened, obviously, it just decimated the continent of Africa, broke up a thousand indigenous communities into the 50 or so countries that were created by white people through colonial actions. And, and you know, there was slavery throughout Europe, North and South America. So there's, there's no special connection that anybody can get away from. We're all connected to this history. And, and I would definitely agree that we're all connected. And I do think that people try to distinguish themselves by saying, I wasn't one of those people. All the I think, time. I think that one of the things that happens, though, is that when people consciously choose to live in an all-white area or particularly an area that uh, is known for its white supremacy and its racism, it, it, it just feels like that those people are excluding themselves from the rest of the reality of the world. But what I hear you saying is that it's just such a part of the fabric that there's no place I can go where I won't be... Um, really where you won't experience it, but you're a part of the fabric. I guess the real issue for me would be even living in those places that you be one of the people who who's desperately trying in your local town to make a difference, that you're holding the conversations with other white people, that you're trying to take down uh, a white supremacist system, even in Oregon, that you want more people of color to come to Oregon. So how would you respond to that? I mean, I know you do a lot of work on racial equity, but um, locally, what are some of the things that you are doing to change Oregonians? Coming to the table was established in Virginia, and it's spread all over the country. I've lived in Oregon the whole time. You know, I, I I moved here in the late 1970s. Um, to uh, excuse me, I moved. Oh my lord, I moved here in 1972 to go to college. <laughs> and and the thing that I've learned through coming to the table and the conversations that I have. My second book, Gather at the Table, written with Sharon Morgan, African American woman, grew up south side of Chicago, tough as nails just a, a wonderful soul. And here I am, kumbaya white guy from Oregon. And we, we visited probably 25, 26 different states. We traveled to places of racial terror and racial hope and mm. listened to each other. What's it like to be in Money, Mississippi in front of the ruins of the Bryant store, you know, where, where this, this, this young man was taken and so brutally murdered you know, to have Emmett Till, what's it like to be a black woman standing here next to a white man? Mm. What's it What's it like for a white man standing here next to this black woman? And so having those conversations is the kind of work that is that, you know, I learned so much from my friendship with Sharon that that has really shifted the way that I think. Mm. Because I, I had that benefit of developing that that deep relationship. So the work in Oregon is the same as the work anywhere. Mm. It's understanding my, as a white man, understanding my own racism, mm. doing my best 
to overcome to the degree possible that I can and to do the work in my life, in my family, in my community um, to make a difference. So, uh, Tom, we actually have to take a break. I, I This happened so quickly. I know, I just realized we have to take a break. But, Tom, when we come back, I want you to answer the question, do you ever feel threatened in Oregon as yeah. a white man doing this work? So we'll be right back after these messages. Hey, everybody. It's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector, coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We're back with my guest today, Tom DeWolf. Tom, I feel like, you know, we're, we've reached the last segment of the show and it's gone by so quickly. And I have so many more things to ask you, but uh, let's start at least with what I asked you prior to the break, which is about, do you ever get threats or fear for your safety in Oregon because you talk about this work? Um, the short answer is no. Um, and that, that's, that goes for everywhere that I've been. And I've, I've been all over this country talking in states in the deep South, the Northeast, the Midwest. Um, uh, I, the only time that people really attack me or, um, other people doing this work who are white is in those, is in chats, is in stuff online where people can be anonymous. Um, and, but for the most part, people who come to come to the table, who are come to hear me speak or what have you, it's a self-selecting audience and they're there because they're interested. And I feel like this is the obligation that I have as a white man and that other white people have who are conscious of this, of this issue of racism to speak up so that Mm -hmm. other white people I mean, just frankly, Sharon was the first one who told me there are people who will not listen to me that will listen to you. Mm-hmm. And we've been in front of audiences. That, and and that's a lot of the work of coming to the table is black and white people together. So as Sharon and I have done our work, Jody and I with the Little Book of Racial Healing, seeing a black man and a white woman is something folks aren't typically used to in this work. Yes. So yes. I, it, it's not something that there's there's big threats that I've ever experienced. However, those threats are real, and we pay attention to that, and and pay attention to issues of of safety for mm-hmm. people, um, because there are people who who wish to cause harm in this world, and unfortunately, some of them are in amazing positions of political power and financial power in this country and around the world. That's um, right. 
That's right. So, and, and, and I think it's one of the things that sometimes keep folks from saying, I'm going to engage in this work because people fear losing their own security, yes. even if it's not their lives. They fear losing their jobs, that people are going to ostracize them. And I really appreciate you talking about uh, that people hear you differently as a white man. And it's unfortunate, but it's absolutely the truth. I've done co-trainings with um individuals who are of a different racial group than I am. And even, even though we could be doing the exact same thing, right. there's a perception of me, oh, she was angry. Even when he, in fact, because if it were a man that I was working with, could be using stronger language, could have like stronger energy that was coming forth. Yeah. But there's a there's a difference, right? So there's even something else, a weight that we carry that's quite different. But also well, and, it, and it also comes into gender issues. I mean, there's right. race is obvious, and there's also this is not just white supremacy, it's male supremacy right. at the core of our nation. That's it's right. Christian supremacy that's at right. the core of this nation. So when we're whoever we're discriminating against. It's all growing in that same rich, fertile soil of fear. That's right. That's right. Either we're going to choose to fear or we're going to choose to be in this place of love. And most of us choose to be in the, we, we're choosing to be in fear if we don't actively disengage from yeah. fear. Yeah. But, but Tom, I just want to say um, you end up in ministry anyway. So it, it, your ministry is different because church isn't always the, the thing, right, where we have right. to do ministry, particularly if you're talking about the ministry of Jesus. So Jesus wasn't in the temple. No. Jesus was out and about. He was and throwing some people out of the temple, as exactly, I recall. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I think you ended up doing what, what it is that, that you were, were called to do. And and Tom, I don't know if we talked about this in, in our pre-discussion, but actually, before I really became immersed in dismantling racism for the second time, I was actually doing work around the wounds of religion because I thought that religion, uh, or and still believe that there's a great wounding. And I believe that uh, one of my next books down the line will be bringing together religion and racism because yeah. it is, uh, they're intertwined as you say. But before we go, um, if you could, could you maybe um, talk just a little bit? I know that that white people often avoid talking about the racial healing work. It's like, what can I do? What can I do? And you've just talked about some positive impacts of doing the work of the conversations. Do you have any other practical action steps that you would give to white people just to get them started or even just to help them move from where they are if they've already? started in this work? The first thing I would say that I learned that first weekend of the coming to the table, that, that weekend that two dozen of us gathered together, somebody um, uh, quoted someone, I don't remember who, that guilt is the glue that holds racism together. So a lot of white folks stay out of this because they feel guilty. Mm -hmm. So get over yourself. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't mean that flippantly. I mean that very seriously is that this is this is one of the ways that racism is perpetuated is because white people don't get involved in the solutions in the in the work so just very practically do the work read the books read black authors um read read books that help people understand the history of racism the the present day impacts of racism um you know there's just so much out there just just pick up Ta-Nehisi Coates, just pick up Henry Louis Gates, you know, read Ruth King, Mindful of Race. Right. Um, you know, coming to the table has a mindfulness working group. I so appreciated the way you started our hour together today, mm -hmm. um, because this is very mindful, heartfelt, spiritual work that we're That's doing. Right. And That's it's, right. you know, the anger isn't going to get us there. Mm -hmm. Um even though there's there's plenty of times when anger is completely appropriate and rage is absolutely understandable. And this is the work. So watch the movies, 
um, read the books, immerse yourself in understanding, you know, reading the articles and participating, coming to the table, coming to the table.org. There's a national virtual group for folks who don't have a group in their local communities that, that meets every month virtually. There's like 10, 11 different groups that invite anybody from around the world to join in their monthly meetings. And it's an opportunity to listen and to speak and to grow in understanding. Mm. Um, but I, I just, this has, it certainly changed my life and put me into relationships that I never would have otherwise had. Yeah. Um, you know, my friendships with black people and brown people were nothing compared to what they are now. Even though I had very good friendships, hmm. there were certain topics. That you, right, and you've gone deeper. But Tom, we actually are at the end of our time together. And But I do want to say, because you just said so many different things there, um, you know, for people who say that yeah. they that they don't have any black and brown friends because they live in an all white neighborhood. You've just given them ways of connecting with people Absolutely. That beyond their neighborhood. Because if they go to commingtothetable.org, they can learn how to have these deeper and more enriched conversations. And so there are ways that you can extend yourself and become friends. The second thing that you said that was really important is often we have interracial relationships, but we don't go deep in the conversation. So I appreciate you saying that. And then the third thing that I want to say is that read Dismantling Racism, Healing Separation from the Inside Out by the Reverend Dr. TLC, because it's also a good book for reading so that you will have the action steps that you need to get involved and to do this work. Tom, I want to thank you so much for being um on the show today, just real quick, if you could tell people how to get in touch with you if they wanted to connect with you. Go to the Coming to the Table website, comingtothetable.org. There's a, the, in the contact, it comes right to the national office. It comes right to me. Okay, um, great. Yeah, great. very easy. Well, Tom, in 30 seconds, give us some words of inspiration to close us out on our show today. All I would, I, I guess what I would say is take the next step and then the next step, and then the next step. And it's one at a time, and it's doable. This is work that we can do together, and we absolutely can't do it by ourselves. It's community work, it's soul work, it's spirit work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, blessings to everybody who's listening today, and uh, you're welcome at the table. Mm. Thank you so much, Tom, for being my guest today. It was a delight to have you. I want to thank my listening audience as well and invite you to stay tuned every week where we have more conversations about dismantling racism. Stay tuned now for the Conscious Consultant Hour with Sam Leibowitz, where he helps you to walk through life with the greatest of ease and joy. Be well, be safe, be encouraged. Until next time, bye for now. business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. 
Are you on edge? Hey, we live in challenging, edgy times, so let's lean in. I'm Sandra Bargeman, the host of The Edge of Every Day, which airs each Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges. That's The Edge of Every Day on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 